from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Amy Winehouse died at the age of 27, and she lived a life that was never not out of control. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Three would be the number of times she said no in quick succession when talking to producer Mark Ronson about rehab, a response that would quickly become musical legend. Another three would be the number of weeks it would take for Amy and Mark to craft half of an album, during which time Amy would frequently disappear to the studio bathroom to indulge in old habits. One more for the number of landmark legal cases she waged against the paparazzi after photographers invaded her privacy one too many times. Nine would be the hour in the morning when Amy would set up tequila shots during her supposed eight-month-long detox. Another three would be the number of months that elapsed between the announcement of a comeback tour and Amy once again crashing and burning. This time, as the headliner of a jazz festival. Six would be the number of songs she was able to stumble through during that show, before Mother Nature literally pulled the plug. And two would be the number of years she'd have left to live when that show ended. All totaling 27. On this episode, Indulging in the Bathroom, a landmark legal case, Mother Nature and Amy Winehouse. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
Mercer Street, New York City, March 2006. There she was. It was hard to miss her. Jet black beehive piled on top of a wispy body. Just how she would look in the tabloids when she became a daily fixture. But in New York City, in 2006, her debut, Frank, hadn't even cracked the top 50 in the States, so nobody knew who this strange-looking creature was. He approached, and she didn't recognize him. She was expecting someone a little more seasoned. As she herself would later put it, she was expecting an older man with a beard, some hip-hop geezer. Mark Ronson was no geezer. Mark Ronson was a 30-year-old producer with a bit of good buzz following him when he landed the opportunity to work on half of the tracks for what would become Amy Winehouse's monster second album, Back to Black. But he was still fighting for producer credits, so it was no surprise she didn't recognize him. In fact, Amy wasn't all too thrilled to even meet the guy. Amy knew Mark was just another DJ who happened to get noticed at some exclusive club, and now he was using that cultural currency to break into record making. All flash, probably just trying to ride the coattails of the nearest pop idol he could find. Amy wasn't out to be a pop idol, and that was well established and well documented. She just wanted to make good music. So excuse her if the Abercrombie-looking motherfucker in front of her didn't necessarily scream authenticity. But what the hell? He was here and she was here. Might as well give him a chance. Amy and Mark went for a walk through New York Soho shopping district. Amy discovered that, like her, Mark was born in London. But that's where the similarities ended. Mark was crafting pop and hip-hop tracks with the likes of Nika Costa while Amy had been busy recording 2003's jazz-heavy Frank. And they were from different universes. Mark's mission was to prove Amy wrong while also proving himself to her. He knew he was the perfect guy for the job, so he looked for common ground. They were both children of divorce, both of them Jewish, both led lives that were nowhere near conventional. Mark grew up in both London and New York and had a hybrid accent to match that experience. Also like Amy, music had always been central to Mark's life. He spent a lot of his childhood in the house of his stepfather, Mick Jones, of the 1980s stadium rock powerhouse, Foreigner. Foreigner's monster hit, I Wanna Know What Love Is, was written by Mick Jones about Mark's mother. Famous artists were in and out of Mark's home. Robin Williams once tucked him into bed. Daryl Hall played early morning chess with Mick Jones while Mark headed off to school in the morning. Mark would frequently wake up to the sounds of late night jam sessions and parties. He routinely found himself wandering downstairs in the middle of the night, unnoticed by the adults, where he'd gravitate towards the stereo, a magnet to steel, and press his body up against the speaker to absorb the vibrations. Music had been his life since as long as he could remember. His education was by audio osmosis. He had a deep understanding of the relationship between Jewish American songwriters and black music, soul, hip hop, and Amy's first love, jazz. Amy threw a curveball. She didn't want to make jazz anymore. In her eyes, jazz had been hijacked by snobs. She didn't want to make snob music. She was now obsessed with the girl groups of the 1960s. The Shangri-Las, the Crystals, the Ronettes, big beehive music. Mark had little experience with the 60s girl group sound, but he was intrigued. 
His shy, soft-spoken demeanor and non-confrontational way of discussing music and life allowed Amy to open up. She started to talk about more than just music. She even told Mark about the on-again, off-again relationship she had with Blake Fielder Civil. Mark knew that being a producer wasn't just about making music. Sometimes you had to play a therapist as well. He pressed her on Blake. It had been a whirlwind romance, she said. Blake had gone back to his ex-girlfriend six months later. Amy was with another guy now, but goddamn, did Blake do a bloody number on her. After they split, Amy got it bad. Real bad, rock bottom bad, drinking all the time bad, and everyone was worried about her. She laughed just thinking about it. She explained to Mark how she had been in and out of the hospital and wound up living at her dad's house so he could keep an eye on her. Mark took it in stride. He wasn't in the business of judging the people he worked with, even if Amy was painting herself as a major league hot mess. He was there to help her pull that paint out and put it down on wax. You know what else, Amy confessed. They tried to make me go to rehab. Oh yeah? Mark was curious. What did you tell them? I told them no, no, no. Wait. Mark stopped dead in his tracks. The attitude, the cynicism, the irony, it was all there. He rewound the words in his head. No, 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 that, that, that was it. It was gimmicky, hooky, it was a song. And the two decamped to Mark's studio. 30 minutes later, Amy emerged with rehab, fully formed. But it was a slow, chugging blues tune. Mark wanted to make it more pop, make it dance. Pop didn't sound like a dirty word when it came from Mark's mouth. He wasn't Simon Fuller. Mark was actually trying to understand where Amy was coming from, how she heard the tune, how she felt it, just like he had felt the vibrations of the music come out of a speaker at an after-hours party when he was a kid. Mark sat down at the drums, banged out a rhythm, and Amy started strumming in time. Holy shit, she couldn't believe how quickly the song came. It was like it was there in the room and she and Mark just reached out and grabbed it. And the other songs came just as quickly. When Amy returned to the studio the next day, Mark had built out tracks for the song that would become Back to Black. It was exactly what she wanted the entire album to sound like. For three weeks, the duo punched the clock at the studio, along with the punchy support of the Dap Kings, Brooklyn's keepers of the old school soul flame. Live horns, raw tunes, real music. Amy sipped rum and coke in between vocal takes. Mark had succeeded in proving Amy wrong. First impressions be damned. Mark's first impression of Amy, however, didn't include any red flags that she was struggling. Her work ethic was much stronger than her reputation. The two got on like a house on fire. Songs like Rehab played more like tongue-in-cheek declarations of independence and desperate cries for help. In the studio, Amy kept her darkest secrets to herself. It wasn't just rum and cokes between takes. She gorged herself with food, like she was medicating anxieties with calories. And then she disappeared into the bathroom, 20, 30, 45 minutes, and back to the vocal booth, her makeup smeared and her appearance pale. Later, studio staffers would comment on how Amy would redecorate bathrooms every time she disappeared into one. In her mind, she was holding it together. She had it all under control, and no one was the wiser. The people would get wise, and she would lose control. She couldn't hold it all together on her own, and it would put her life in mortal danger. 
Amy Winehouse sat on a beach in St. Lucia and felt the warm salt air blow against her hair, 4,000 miles away from London in its prying eyes. So many eyes in London. London was more than Big Brother. London was Big Sister and Big Cousin and Big Aunt and Uncle, too. It was 2008 and St. Lucia was planned as a reset of sorts. After her no-show at the Rock en Seine in Paris, her disastrous appearance at Bestival on the Isle of Wight, and that dust-up at the Prince's Trust charity ball, Amy was in desperate need of a reset for mind, body, and soul. She was determined to get clean. She was rebuilding herself physically and mentally. She was seeing things clearly now as she wanted out of this dog and pony act. And she knew exactly what to do about it. She'd hit the paparazzi where it hurt, hit them hard, fuckers wouldn't see it coming. As it stood right now, she could see them coming a mile away. All the way in St. Lucia, she could still see them. And they were right where she left them back in London. They were always where she left them when she went to bed, when she woke up. And there was that time when she was just trying to pick up a prescription like a normal human being, and they didn't care. As soon as the taxi pulled up to the curb, they were on her. Flashes painted the back seat of the cab. She stumbled out the door and towards her apartment, flanked by a bodyguard. And one of the paparazzi noticed a prescription slip in Amy's hand. The temptation was too strong. It was right there. The extra strength medications old Wino was taking. He couldn't not take the shot. Private medical information. Are you fucking kidding me? Amy stormed after the scum, halfway between distress and disorientation nearly falling down in the process. Her bodyguard pulled her back towards the door of her apartment. They had no common sense, none of them, as if common sense would make any difference, as if after years of hounding her, her assailants would finally give up the chase. And they didn't. The onslaught of clicks, the onslaught of flashes, they continued, point blank, merciless, and they captured everything. The disheveled hair, the cracked lips, dry skin, vacant eyes, the mascara that streaked down her face after an emotional afternoon. Her raw reaction when Blake Fielder Civil was released from prison only to be sent straight to rehab. The man she loved, and then the man who broke her heart, and also the man who introduced her to Class A drugs. The very same man who inspired the album that ensured she'd never have another private moment in her life. The man she reconciled with and then married, only to lose him to prison six months later. Amy was reeling. Just a few short years ago, she was making the best music she'd ever made with Mark Ronson on Back to Black. The music they made together liberated her from the heartache that had run her down like a freight train. Now, she couldn't even show her face in public. She needed bodyguards everywhere she went. She was a global superstar, and every time she left her home to go to fucking McDonald's, there were thousands of pictures to document it. Well, shit, Back to Black wasn't just a blessing, it was a curse. She felt the strong hand of her bodyguard grab her by the shoulder and guide her to the door. She fumbled with her key. The endless stream of flashes and clicks continued, and the camera snapped and snapped, and then Amy snapped. She rushed the closest Cretan with a camera she could find and grabbed his lens. He pulled it away and sidestepped Amy. She staggered into the street and then the taunt started. The paparazzi, wino, wino, wino. They continued to mock her, trying to provoke another explosion, another priceless photo, another story to sell to the Daily Mail. Amy turned around and surveyed the crowd of cameramen separating her from the front door of her apartment. 
was hopeless. Her bodyguard ushered her into the nearest cab that he could, and they sped off. They didn't even have the decency to let her enter her own goddamn home without mobbing her. And that home was now ground zero for the press. Each morning and each evening, there would be a platoon of paparazzi waiting outside her door, hoping to catch a glimpse of the Beehive ballistic missile. Eventually, people could tell if Amy was in town or not simply by the presence outside her apartment. Months later, when Amy headed to St. Lucia and the paparazzi were forced to trail smaller game celebrities, thieves would break into her house and steal a number of personal possessions, guitars, recording equipment, thousands of pounds, all because they knew there was no way Amy was in town if the front of her home wasn't flooded at all hours. Fuck the 21st century. You were always in the wrong place and it was always the wrong time. The dawn of the digital age, the golden age of reality TV, celebrity in 2008 was not your father's celebrity. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin didn't have to deal with this shit. The lines between reality and public perception were blurred. People didn't want to see celebrities living a life that was so high it was out of reach. They wanted the glamour stripped away. They wanted real people, flaws and all, but especially flaws. And in the case of Amy Winehouse, people got to see it all. If she had a bad concert, if she was drunk during a night out on the town, if she showed up with Blake on the street in front of her apartment bloody and bruised, if she chased down paparazzi, wild-eyed and half-conscious, if she puffed from a crack pipe, people couldn't get enough. They were printing money off of this bullshit. And nearly everyone around Amy cashed in, many in her circle included, ensuring the paparazzi would only become more of a nuisance and would never really go away. She just wanted to make music. All this other shit hadn't been part of the deal. It wasn't her vision. She felt unsafe going about her daily life. So she decided that it was long past time to reclaim her safety, her comfort, her life. She wasn't going to take it anymore. So she left. She stayed in St. Lucia for eight months. And on May 1st, 2009, she relaxed under a hot sun on a beach while a high court back in London ruled in her favor to grant an anti-harassment injunction against Big Pictures, the leading paparazzi agency in the country. It was a landmark victory. The paparazzi were no longer allowed within 100 meters of Amy Winehouse. They weren't allowed to take photos of her in front of her home, and they weren't allowed to photograph her friends and family members without consent. For Amy, it wasn't just a victory but it was a little fuck you to the industry that had taken advantage of her for years. She was in control now, and not just over who could and couldn't take her picture. She was in control of her health, her career, her love life. She was over Blake. She was making plans to move out of Camden to the more serene Hadley Wood area of Enfield, north of the city. Her new house, her new life would be waiting for her when she returned home. But there was something else waiting for her too. And if she looked hard enough, she could see it coming. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. On the first day of the 2009 St. Lucia Jazz Festival, the rain was relentless. A tropical storm ripped through the island. The eye of the storm aimed directly at the site of the concert. Hard, driving rain, not just tropical, biblical. The weather was so intense that the first day of the music festival was canceled. And by the second day, the rain had finally let up. But there was another hurricane preparing to bear down on the main stage. This hurricane wasn't a tropical weather system, but rather the headliner of the festival, the main draw. The crowd waited eagerly under a bright, eerie full moon, and the hurricane picked up speed backstage. It was Amy Winehouse's first show since the debacle at the festival eight months prior. The show where she showed up late and left early. The same one where she ordered two cases of Jack Daniels and did her best to consume every last drop of it in under an hour. The show bookended a tumultuous 2008. That year started off well enough. Five Grammy wins, but it was all downhill from there, or uphill depending on your point of view. Amy's beloved Blake was sentenced to 27 months in prison. Two bleak videos of Amy and the Libertines Pete Doherty were posted online. And they were high as hell and playing with baby mice like a couple of dirty-fingered little kids, though their fingers were dirty with soot, presumably from a crack pipe. This behavior just added fuel to her ongoing public relations fire. Amy was arrested three times. She had lost complete control. 
It was now careening towards a predicted oblivion, unfurling in a wild fit. She was quickly becoming the next tragic chapter in the history of young talent who burned out before their time. Time to put 2008 in the rear view. It was 2009 and things were gonna be different. Amy was healthy. She gained weight and was no longer looking dangerously thin. She had started a yoga regimen, was riding horses, and was bonding with the locals in St. Lucia. She had physically moved herself far away from her old haunts and her old habits. But old habits, you know what they say, they die hard. Her demons lingered in the air, in her head, and they followed her like a dog follows its master. She was off junk, but she was frequently photographed sipping red wine and smoking what one Guardian article described as a strange cigarette. Come on. Amy was riding a fine line of control, one moment having it, and the next moment, not so much. Her father, Mitch, brought a camera crew to St. Lucia, claiming that he was making a documentary about his life. Everyone knew the score, though. If he needed money, Amy could provide it. She just didn't want the constant clicking and flashing of cameras back in her life. And then she received news that Blake, her Blake, had fathered a child while in rehab. Fuck, and that one hurt more than she thought it would. For all the good the island had done her, it seemed Amy couldn't escape her previous life. She stood backstage at the St. Lucia Festival, her trademark beehive hairdo back in all its glory, hovering elegantly over her tattooed arms. A few stiff drinks took the edge off, yeah, and what of it, she thought. She'd been drinking regularly again, but she figured out how to keep it under control. She'd been hospitalized in February for dehydration, but she convinced herself that that had been an adverse reaction to her medication and had nothing to do with the amount of alcohol she was drinking, right? St. Lucia wasn't England. New Amy Winehouse wasn't old Amy Winehouse. She wouldn't let the same old story be told, not again, right? Her mind and body were healthier and she was fixing to make sure her career was healthy too. And that's what she told herself as she knocked back another vodka and Coke. Then she heard the announcer come over the PA. Ladies and gentlemen, St. Lucia Jazz Festival introduces Hurricane Amy jumped the gun. She blew onto the stage and blew her cue in the process. It wouldn't be the only cue she missed that evening. The drums thudded out a backbeat. The backup dancers started to groove. Amy followed their lead but found herself woefully offbeat as she turned her back to the crowd and steadied herself. With a deep breath, she faced them, but no words came out. She moved the mic stand to the left and then to the right, and she called for the bass players to step forward, and then she shrugged her shoulders. She was completely fucking lost. Amy swayed back and forth, and what the hell was happening? She had this, she had it under control, right? A few nonsensical words scattered to the wind, her mind raced. The island, her dad, her Blake, rehab, arrest, the alcohol, the music. Oh, fuck, that's right, she was supposed to be performing music. And for a full two minutes, she wandered around as the music played, caught halfway between awkward dancing and nearly falling over on stage with each step. She leaned against the microphone stand. Her knuckles went white as she gripped the mic and summoned every ounce of energy she had. And finally, she found her voice. Right. Here we go. She barely made it through the first song, Know You Now, slurring some words and outright forgetting some others. Sarcastic cheers from the crowd, and maybe she wasn't in control after all. She spied a Guinness on the floor. She steadied herself for long enough to pick it up, 
and then steadied herself for a few seconds more and knocked it back. Hurricane Amy was picking up steam, and so was the weather outside. A steady rain began to pummel the audience and the stage. Amy stumbled through two more songs, and the energy in the crowd began to shift. This wasn't the new Amy Winehouse they'd heard about, the one who got her shit together, the one staging a massive comeback. And now, they weren't just seeing a rerun of the rundown old Amy Winehouse, they were getting fucking soaked. Amy lifted yet another cup to her lips, this time a vodka and coke. Her mind wandered, she could have been anywhere. Her head was heavy, she leaned against the drum riser, she just needed a moment to rest. A backup singer pulled Amy off the riser, and she played it off, jokingly flirting with him as she made her way back to the mic in the bewildered crowd. And then, immediately after the next song, the lights went out. Literally. The rain had turned from steady to straight up downpour, so heavy that it shorted the rigging on stage. The torrential rain matched Amy's manic, drunken energy. By the time the lights came back on, Amy had finished her vodka and coke and meandered through an uninspired rendition of Tears Dry on their own. It would be a minute before anything at the St. Lucia Jazz Festival was dry, and the entire scene was soaked. Hurricane Amy made a downturn. She walked off the stage in the middle of the next song, Valerie, staggered backstage and retraced her tracks. And there was no real escape from what her life had become, not even on St. Lucia. As she sat on a couch backstage, absolutely wasted, she started to understand the unsettling truth. If she ever wanted to take back control, she'd have to dry out first. Amy Winehouse sat with a friend at the bar of St. Lucia's Cotton Bay Village Resort. Her massive gold-hooped earrings peeked out from her dark, luscious curls, day-old mascara smeared around her eyes, her clothes hanging from her wiry frame. She was perched barefoot, like some rare bird, the kind the honeymooners and families on vacation had never seen before. Amy was once again starting to look like things weren't going her way. One week removed from her complete meltdown at the St. Lucia Jazz Festival. She wasn't even supposed to be here. She was supposed to be home in England, performing at the star-studded Island Records 50th anniversary party alongside Bono and the boys in U2. But just because she was supposed to be there didn't mean she wanted to be there. Far from it. Fucking Bono, she thought. She chuckled to herself as she recalled the Q Awards back in 2006. You two up on stage receiving some bloody award or another. Bono rambling on with another pair of his fucking designer sunglasses. She sat in the audience and suffered. He just went on and on, droning like the spoiled prick that he was. She was beyond fed up. And she let Bono know it. She didn't hold back, and the whole place heard her. Shut up! I don't give a fuck! She wasn't on some trip to change the world, and she wasn't about to rub shoulders at some lame-ass record label birthday party if she wasn't good and ready. Forget Island Records. She was going to keep doing her thing on an actual island. She ordered a shot of tequila and drained it. If she was going to make a comeback, it would be on her terms. She didn't need to be on stage again. Fuck 
fucking hell, the Beatles stopped performing live and they turned out all right. Amy could still hear the booze from the crowd echoing through her mind. She thought of the years that had passed since she put a record out. Universal kept rejecting her demos. They said the songs didn't sound like they would sell 11 million records like her previous songs did. What do they even know about it? They were the same people who enjoyed listening to Bono ramble on like he was fucking Gandhi. Amy downed another shot of tequila. The bartender looked at her anxiously. It was anyone's guess if she'd walk out of the bar casually or end up on all fours making a scene. And the bartender placed a cup of hot water and a few tea bags in front of Amy and her friend. Amy would have been insulted if it wasn't so funny. She was doing quite well, thank you. Normally she would have had six shots by now. Today she'd only had two. It was nine in the morning. Like almost everything the past few years, Amy's time in St. Lucia didn't go according to plan. She meant for St. Lucia to be her escape, her detox, a rehab on her own terms. Most importantly, it was a time to reconnect with herself, to get back to the music and away from the tabloids and paparazzi, but they followed her everywhere. And now she was slipping. The coat, the pills, the junk, that was all out of the picture. She kicked those habits, but the booze, that never really went away. And as Amy tried to sober herself up hours before noon, a wave of anxiety crashed through her mind. She couldn't trust her fans. She couldn't trust her friends. She couldn't trust her family, her father, her Blake, her sweets. It was gone. But there was only one thing that truly let her get away from it all. Amy reached over the bar and grabbed the bottle of tequila. She knew she wasn't supposed to. She took a massive gulp and felt the liquor rocket through her body. Life was beautiful, and it was fucked up, and at times it seemed predestined. Maybe that was something people just told themselves when they couldn't get their shit under control. Because control, as it would turn out, was one thing Amy Winehouse would never regain. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Zeth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Matt Bowden. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lumena. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at Disgraceland Pod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Dare. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com schedule release to learn more.